Well, good morning. It feels like more than seven days ago that we were here last time because our weather has taken a turn from summer to winter. But last week, Pastor Brad opened up our series on our five core values, and he spoke about the value called transformational truth. And this is part of our series, which we're calling Back to Basics. And today's message is on the second, or by one of our other five, and it is the value of glocal service. Now, glocal is a combination of two words. It's a combination of the word global, meaning what kids? The world, right? Spherical, everything, world, all around. And the word local, which is close proximity. So I don't know who coined it. Um, maybe Brad, you know. Bob Roberts coined this term uh, several years ago, I think. So basically just took the two words together and combined it, and, and we have this word glocal. It's not one of Brad's made-up words, which we have many more of those. So for those of you who are skeptical of word formations like I am, when you write an email later today to a friend and you use this in a sentence, because I'm sure you'll be talking about Jericho's core value, or you'll be talking about your own glocal emphasis, you will get a red underline here, and you may think, this is a made-up word. But if you Google this word, you will get almost three million hits. And I think that we're in the age as a society where we trust Google far more than we trust the dictionary or anything that, that Microsoft Office creates. So uh, this is what glocal means. And whenever we use the word glocal, uh, please remember we're looking at this global emphasis, but also this local emphasis. We, we want to do both. We have an idea of, of both near and far. But the word glocal isn't as important as the second word, because glocal actually is just a descriptive word here, that the, the real emphasis on the word service. This is our value of service, and we want our service to be glocal. And service is, is one of those words that uh, all of us have some sort of association with. We all understand what this, word's me what this word means. You think about all the derivatives of service, serving, servant, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a number of years and attend a church, or if this is your first time in a church building, or an event center for that matter, in a church establishment, you have an idea of what service is all about. I mean, way, way back in, in time, and even in many parts of the world, uh, people are employed or serve as servants. It's different than a, than a slave owner relationship. It's, it's a different technicality. But we understand what that looks like, that there's payment and then, and then there's service industry behind that. And even in our world today, we still use these sorts of words. People work in the service industry. You, you go to a restaurant and there will be people, employees of that restaurant, who identify themselves as servers and they do service-oriented tasks for yourself. You have a problem, you pick up the phone and you dial a number and you are connected to a customer service person who helps you so greatly that you spend hours on the phone with them and they just are so helpful just you know they answer all of your questions because they're in the service industry there's a huge profession in our world today is customer service and this idea of service now there is um one difference between the world's definition or society's definition of service and that of the biblical understanding of service. Uh, as far as society is concerned, service is, is uh, an employable job. There is compensation giving for the service. You bill service if you are in that industry. And uh, in, in the Bible, we understand this is not something that we look at for compensation. This is something that's freely given. And same thing, it's not billable. Uh, billable service hours 
and service industry, we understand from the biblical mandate that this is to be a lifestyle. And this is part of the reason why we have this emphasis on global service. Now, all of us have served in some capacity, regardless of who you are, your background. You've all done it. Maybe you babysat your neighbor's kid. Uh, perhaps you had people over at your home for an extended stay. Perhaps you let someone borrow something. We've all served in one way or another. Maybe you've helped an old woman across the street. And I bring this up because I actually had an opportunity to do this like three weeks ago. Like it's one of those phrases that you use in life, you know, do a good deed, help someone across the street. I've never done that in my entire life. I've never had an opportunity. And I think I'd be the person that tried to help someone and the woman would probably hit me with her purse. Like, what are you doing? Don't steal my groceries. But I actually had that opportunity the other day to help someone across the street. And it, I, just a simple act of service, right? We've all done this. And some of you, my guess is today, that you grew up in a family, whether you grew up churched or uh, no religious association at all, through different circumstances, people that you've looked up to, all the influence, you grew up without really asking the question of why you serve, you just do it. It's just something that you've done. And as a society, you understand this is, this is a value of our society. It's something that we should do. It's something that people ought to do, is you do these kind of kind acts, you do these nice things to other people. And this is a little bit similar to my story. Growing up and being involved in service-oriented things and not really ever asking the question of why. My, my family, we, we were regulars at the church that I grew up in. I have an older brother. He's about two years older than me. And my parents were extremely involved in a number of different ministry areas. And so we tagged along and, and we did these things with our parents. So my parents are, are uh, quite musical and they would serve in, on Sunday mornings, and so they'd practice during the weeks. And I remember we'd have people over at our home in the basement dedicated to a drum set and a piano, and we'd have people come down. And, and I remember you know, all this music feeling in our house is just something I, that is a memory of mine because my parents chose to serve. We hosted a, a Wednesday night Bible study group for years and years and years, and I remember the task after dinner of grabbing the chairs and moving them down in the living room and setting them all up. And, and whether we were told this or not, it was assumed at some point that my brother and I were to take the least desirable seats in the living room because our guests were supposed to have those. So I, I can't remember one time ever sitting on the couch in all those seven, eight years during the study. And, and my brother and I, we'd sit on the chairs. They were kind of part of the living room as it went upstairs, which is right next to our fireplace. The worst spot to be in the wintertime because my parents do not do a great job of keeping that wood stove at a low level. And, and that's just the memory I have of, of service. My, my father, he ran sound. And we met at a, at a school building, a high school. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love Jericho so much. It reminds me of my roots. We'd set up, we'd take down, we'd move things. And, and my brother and I would get there early with him and we'd unravel the cords. And our system back then was extremely sophisticated. We had four cords that went to four microphones and each one had a different color. And so when I was eight years old, I could set up sound, I could run sound, and now I have no clue what's going on uh, back there. But we had these different tasks and there was this box back behind the, the stage and just this very small box, and the biggest thing that was in there was our songbooks. They weren't hymnals. We called them the red songbooks. You can guess what color they were. And, and we probably had 80 songbooks, 100 songbooks, and that was kind of the kids' jobs. We'd go back there, and we'd move these songbooks from the back storage area up to the front. And my brother and I, we kind of had this competition to see how many we could carry at once. And we had two methods. We had kind of the gorilla method, 
where you kind of line them up by your side and go all the way up to your shoulder, and you kind of walk down the stage like this. And we had the other method, which was my preference, where you kind of squat down as low as you can go, and you line it all the way up to your chin. And then you would walk that way, and, and you know whoever was there, they'd, they'd help you. And you'd have these red songbooks, and I think a few of those songbooks, their binding life was not quite as long as they could have been because uh, we, we destroyed a few of them. But these are all memories that I have of service. And I never really asked the question of why, except in my weaker moments. I can look back and laugh and think, oh, this is a great example that my parents gave us as kids. But in my weaker moments, I did ask the question of why, usually with a bit of complaining. I think, why do we have to get to church so early? We're always the first ones here. Why is my dad still talking to that guy? <laughs> the Seahawk game has started, and he's been talking to this guy for 30 minutes. No one else is here. Why are we having those people over for dinner again? They're not any fun. <laughs> Why do we have to do that? Why can't she do that? I don't see her doing anything. Why does my mom always have to do it? Why doesn't she do something? What are we doing? Like, Why is this important? Why do we serve? And my guess is that probably a few of you have asked that question sometime in your life, whether it's here at Jericho Ridge, maybe at a nonprofit organization that you volunteer at, perhaps in some other setting, maybe at your work. Why? Like, why am I serving? Why is this important? Now, I want you to think about that question for a minute, but I'm going to go down another road for, for a few minutes, and it is a little bit of a di diversion, but trust me, I'm hopefully going to bring you back to this, this same spot again. I want to go back to what Pastor Brad spoke about last week. He spoke on transformational truth, and the point that he made, hopefully, is still in your memory. He said, when your heart is transformed by truth, your life will bring forth, forth obedient fruit. Remember that line? When your heart is transformed by truth, your life will bring forth obedient fruit. Now, this is, this is a great summary statement. It, it's completely correct, and I hope it stayed with you, and, and you've thought about that during the week. But one thing Brad didn't have a chance to get to, because if he did we'd probably still be here from last week because it's such a, a massive biblical topic of how truth transform us. But you'll notice that the statement begins with when. When your heart is transformed by truth, then your life will bring forth obedient fruit. The question that I want to ask is how? Because if your heart has not been transformed by truth, what do you do? How do you do it? What does transformation look like? What do we do? And my fear is that many people, many Christians, are stuck. They look at this truth and they say, that's great, when my heart is transformed, then, then fruit happens and all these good things happen, but I don't know if transformations happen, and I don't know what to do about it. Maybe you haven't been taught, maybe you haven't asked the question, maybe you feel somewhat stalled in your growth as an individual. And I think one of the reasons that we get stuck is because of our understanding of the word grace. And grace is one of the most magical words that we know of. It actually defies human logic because it's the exact opposite of how you and I typically behave. We like to earn things. We like to grasp things. We move forward. We accomplish things ourselves, and we feel good about it. And grace basically says you can't earn anything about it. It's a free gift. And that encompasses our relationship with God. We have this void because God is completely holy, completely sinless, and grace, which uh, I think is a great understanding, 
And the definition is basically that grace is opposed to earning. You can't earn grace. It's just there. You must receive it. Grace is opposed to earning. But listen to this distinction very carefully. While grace is opposed to earning, grace is not opposed to effort. See, grace has taught some people, I think, that they don't need to try. And that's true in the sense of salvation, because it's a gift. You cannot earn your own salvation. But grace is not opposed to effort. It's actually opposed to earning. And I'm going to reference Dallas Willard. His quotation is up there on the screen right now. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. There's a difference between earning and effort. There's a difference between an attitude and a belief and then the action that we take and that we do with it. Now, grace still functions within our efforts. We can try as hard as we can, and if we don't have grace, if we don't have this belief and this understanding, then it gets us nowhere. It's, it's simply on our own efforts. The understanding of grace is that we have this free gift, this promise of life transformation, and then the effort that we put forth to make sure we receive this through God, that's how grace and effort work together in the system to bring about life transformation. Now, I want to look at, at a passage real briefly. We're going to look at the, the book of Second Peter, because this is where the foundation of this statement comes true. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Second Peter. As you may have guessed, this is the second letter that a man named Peter wrote. And if you're not quite as familiar with your Bible as uh, others are, or if this is a little bit of a different book for you to find, flip over to the right-hand side, because it's pretty close to the latter books of the New Testament, and you will find the book of Second Peter. The text is also going to be up on our screen, so you can follow it there as well. Peter's just begun the second letter. So the first two verses are basically him introducing himself and talking to his audience and, and uh, thanking them and encouraging them. And I'm going to get into verse 3, because this is where this understanding of how tr- life transformation happens begins. And he says this. He's, he's saying, verse 3, his divine power, he's speaking of Christ here, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's a whole lot of words, right? Basically what he's saying is what Christ has given us He's basically given us, through his sacrifice, through his grace, he's given us power. And this power makes everything possible in our lives. Everything we need for life and for godliness is the phrases that he used there. So Christ, or what he has done in our lives, how he has conquered sin, his presence in our lives, everything possible is made possible to us because of this power. The promises that he talks about, we're able to understand them and, and fulfill them and live them out. And, and even the temptations of the world and the sin that is out there, we actually can be protected of that through Christ's great power. And this kind of might trigger some of the thoughts of Jesus that he said when he was here on earth, as recorded in the Gospels, where he says, I came to give life, to give life more abundantly, to seek and save the lost, And you might be thinking about some of these promises of this incredible life that you've heard of and maybe quite haven't experienced or experienced at some times in your life of of this rich, abundant life transformation process that is one of our values as well. And Peter is now going to key in on how this happens. Verse 5, this is the how 
the question that we were just asking. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. For this very reason, for this reason of of understanding and following through Christ's promises, for this very reason of, of having everything that we need for life and godliness, make every effort to add these things in your life, to grow in these areas. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. I think everyone here would like to have a productive and effective life. We'd like to have great influence. We would like to live incredible lives of love and hope and promise. And and Peter says here, make every effort to add these things in your life. What's needed to experience life transformation? Effort. What's required to live life to the fullest? Peter says, effort. You got to try. And remember, effort isn't earning here. Uh, Peter is not saying in order to get in God's good books, in order to feel better about yourself, and, and, and order to overcome, you just need to try and try and push harder and harder and put more and more effort in. No, he understands that grace here has already saved these people. They're, they're living with the knowledge of Christ. He's saying in order to grow in these areas, in order to experience this, this fullness of life that Christ has talked about, it's going to take effort. You're going to have to put forth effort. Because grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And transformation takes effort. Now, through these efforts, we begin to see this fruit. We begin to see this transformation from the inside out that results in fruit, that results in this experience of of life transformation. And this is not just an isolated passage where Peter has his his thoughts here and and we don't see uh, any sort of of resonance with other authors. We, we see the Apostle Paul say basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He uses that imagery of an athlete running a race. And he says, don't you know, you know, if you're an athlete, what do you do? You train yourself. You don't just go and run and hope for the best. You go through all this training. You make sacrifice. There's a cost to this. You put for all sorts of effort. And then you, how do you run? Well, you run in the right direction to win the prize. And if you win that prize, you get a crown, and that's great, isn't it? But that crown only lasts for your lifetime. And use that analogy for for your spiritual walk. He says, why don't you run in a a way to win the race? Because the reward we get lasts forever. And that's going to take effort. Because transformation takes effort. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, all right, well, what does this have to do with service? (laughs) So I'll jump back off the road I was on and try to, tie this back in. What does service have to do with effort? What does this have to do with life transformation? Now, I asked that question a few minutes ago of what's the point of service? Why should we serve? And some of you may have stayed on that train of thought. You might have come up with a few responses in your head, and so I'll try to echo some of these. You might say, well, that's what Jesus did. Didn't Jesus live a life of service? He said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Is that the whole point of the incarnation of him coming down was to serve other people, to give his life? Absolutely. 
Some of you might be saying, well, what about the the great commandment, love the Lord your God, and and the commandment that goes with it, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that about service? Isn't that why we should serve? Because other than Jesus commands us to, and you remember the the story of the Good Samaritan, where the the person asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? I, I think I'm fulfilling this commandment of loving my neighbor. And he tells this story of the Good Samaritan and and the understanding is whoever's in need, who's ever in need that you come across, you serve them. That's what it means to love your neighbor is service, sacrifice, doing everything you can for those around you who find themselves in need. And these are excellent reasons for serving. This is at the heart. These are the cornerstones of of our theology of why we serve, understanding that this is what Jesus taught and this is how Jesus lived and and that we are in fact supposed to do the same thing. But there's another reason that I'm going to offer you today. There's another reason for why we should serve and how it's connected to transformation. We serve because service has a way of transforming our hearts. Service has a way of transforming our hearts whether we do that in our neighborhood or whether we do that overseas, whenever we serve, our hearts begin to be transformed. Transformation takes effort, and service is one way to ignite the transformation process. I'll use an example. Uh, A number of you have been on service or missions projects. If you haven't, I'm sure that you've talked with someone who has gone and, and done something And so often we hear these people come back from their their trip, whether they're gone for a weekend or three years, and we hear them come and they they give us a report and they say, well, this was my objective. We went to build houses. We went to serve at the orphanage. We went to minister to these people. We went to train these people and and Bible, whatever it might be. This is our objective. We went to serve, right? That's what we usually hear people say. We went to serve. And they say, But then I actually found that I kind of felt like I received more than I gave. Like I went to serve, but I don't know, I feel a little bit different. I feel changed a little bit. And and sometimes there's writing on on this too. Like, should we do short-term missions? Because it seems like it's actually benefiting the people more than the people who actually receive it. So, and, And you might ask yourself in those situations, well, did they not try hard enough? Like maybe... Maybe they didn't serve hard enough. Maybe they didn't give enough. Maybe the sacrifice wasn't there because they almost seemed confused on who, who benefited from this trip. Shouldn't they just be saying, I'm exhausted. Like, man, not doing that for another four years. Mercy. Like, I just gave and I gave and I gave and I gave. And boy, their life was transformed, but I'm tanked. And so, uh, you know, whoever next, like, good luck with that. I hope, I hope you do okay, but I'm, I'm spent. Instead, we, we see the opposite. We see the people being served blessed. We see the people who are serving being transformed. And the reason for that is that service has a way of igniting transformation. And what happens is even though service is an outward-oriented thing, even though we do it with this focus of helping those around us, even though it's an upward thing too, we serve because we love Christ and we understand that's his commandment to him and whenever we obey him, Christ is honored It's also an inner thing as well. It's a transformation process whenever we choose to serve. Now, if transformation is our goal, and if effort is what's required for this goal, I think the first step is to make a plan. We need to make some sort 
of plan, some sort of service plan, each and every one of us. I mean, we make plans in uh, pretty much everything we do in, in our life. My wife and I love to make plans. It keeps us on task. It gets things done. We, I mean, everyone here, we, we make plans for pretty much everything, right? You make plans for your kids' education. Uh, you make dinner plans. You make financial plans. You make relational plans. You make television plans. I mean, we make physical fitness plans. Where would it be if we didn't make physical fitness plans? I mean, that, that's, we, we, we basically we have this vision of where we want to be, and we don't just think about it. We just, just don't hope for it. No, we understand, well, if I want to be here, then I'm going to have a couple of steps in order to reach that. And we do that in every single area of our life. So my question is, where do you want to be on your life transformation? Where do you want to be a year from now? September 2012 is coming. It's going to come fast, probably in about 12 months my guess. All of a sudden, we're going to be in the same room, the same ministry fair, and instead of asking the question then, I want to ask the question now, where do you want to be a year from now? What sort of life transformation do you need in your life? What's, what's God saying to you about areas that your life can be transformed? And the message here today is it's going to take effort. It's going to take effort. You can't just hope for it. You could pray for it all year long even. But if there's not a willingness to step out and put forth effort, my guess is that life transformation is probably just going to be a dream that will not be fulfilled unless you take some sort of action and effort to step into what Christ is asking you to do. So make a plan. Make a plan. What step can you take? What action can you take to serve in order to realize that goal? We're surrounded here by a, a number of opportunities here at our ministry fair. And this is, is not just a message that applies to our ministry fair and to what's happening here at Jericho. We can serve in each and every capacity. And, and there's ways that we can certainly grow and experience life transformation that doesn't include service. But service is one of those unique things that as we serve and as we do things intentionally to be obedient to Christ and to do things outside of our spheres, we begin to see this transformation process happening ourselves. Transformation is possible, but it takes effort. And I'm going to ask the band to come up now, and they're going to play a couple of songs that are going to uh, cement these words of truth into our hearts and into our minds. And, and as you sing, I, I just want you to, to think about that again and say, all right, well, what sort of plan can I make? What's that going to look like in my life? What sort of things am I noticing in my life where, where I feel a, a, a sense of unsettlement, discontentment, uh, perhaps some sort of irritability? And I'm noticing these character traits that, that Peter talks about, these fruit that is abundant from this transformative life where we have uh, self-control, where we have kindness, uh, we have all these different things. Am I seeing that in my life? And if not, why not? Is service going to make a difference? What can I do? What plan can I make in order to see this transformation come true?